You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Our discourses about archives often use emotive words like desire, fever, seduction and fetish. Words that suggest our work is really something else than it is supposed to be. Not a dispassionate examination of the past through the surviving records, but a passionate, obsessive and possibly unhealthy revelling in the physical object. We either seem overly concerned with uncovering deep secrets and hanging someone's dirty linen to dry, or we appear to be at fault for directing, misdirecting our attention to something that is merely incidental. In psychoanalysis, the fetish is not just an object of desire, it is an object of misplaced desire. For this reason, many commentators have critiqued the, ide- critiqued the ideological nature of archival work, uh, including its misguided and even false inclination for positivism and empiricism. In history and criticism, Dominique Le Capra dismisses the archive as fetish because it function at, functions as a literal substitute for the reality, which itself is in quotation marks, for the reality of the past. That past, however, he argues, is always already lost for the historian. And therefore, the archive is a stand-in for the past that brings the mystified experience of the thing itself. Le Capra, as a historian, does not devalue the archive, a point that is perhaps too easily missed by other commentators. But rather, he objects to the wrong use of the archive, a use that does not see the archive as simply a repository of traces of the past, which may be used in its inferential reconstruction, but but an archive that revels in an indiscriminate mystique, which is bound up with hegemonic pretension. Jacques Derrida takes a position not too different from uh, Le Capra in Archive Fever, uh, where he critiques the contention that origins and genealogies have any real explanatory power. The archive, Derrida writes, uh, confuses itself with the arche, with the origin of which it is only the type, the typos, the iterable letter or character. The archive is not coterminous with the origin. It is simultaneously past and present. But perhaps paradoxically, it is more present than past. And because it is present, I think at least this is what Derrida is saying, it reinforces our nostalgia for our return to that origin. Derrida recognises that the desire for origins is something that is deeply embedded in our culture. But, But as is often the case in the precepts of liberal modernity, that desire, that nostalgia, is cast as something negative, as quaint, naive, uncritical. My aim in this talk is to posit the opposite, that the emotive quality of this desire functions fruitfully as a way to stimulate curiosity. Desire can validate the archive in a way that needn't be problematic in that it allows individuals to connect with the past. In her introduction to a collection of essays called Archive Stories, the historian Antoinette Burton is of the view that the relevance of archives has attained a new form, um, has attained a new form and a new popularity and a new level of success, as it were, in our day. She observes something of a resurgence of positivism in such diverse fields 
as law and popular culture. And in the empirical conceits of TV shows such as the CSI franchise and Waking the Dead, for instance, um, she sees that resurgence. Paradoxically, she sees this development as being the result of an archive acquiring a new kind of uh, sacral character. The proliferation and democratization of archives, their increased use and increased opportunities that it offers for individuals to create their own archives, is leading to a greater recognition of their power and value. To me, Burton's view opens up a way by which we might actually talk more sensibly about the attraction of the archive and the artefacts it contains. It strikes me that scholars who celebrate the archive's seductiveness can pinpoint precisely what it is about the archive that attracts them. Um, the full drama of the handwriting, for example, the scratched out word and the hastily added postscript, the stains and inscrutable after-the-fact annotations uh, written by, the, by unknown hands, um, etc. Nonetheless, or the, or the tea stains or the wine stains on the, on, the, on the document, as we saw earlier. Nonetheless, they can't really explain, these scholars can't really explain why this allure is important or whether it does anything at all apart from providing pleasure. In the Intimate Archive, uh, Marion Deaver um, and her co-authors Sally Newman and Anne Vickery begin to hint at a way forward out of this impasse by pointing to the tactile economy of the artefacts. Although, they argue, we cannot exactly touch the past, we can touch the objects from the past, allowing us, they say, they write, to indulge in a fantasy that we can see into another time and place. To understand this point, just think for a moment of the digital archive and the way the screen actually acts as filter, or perhaps literally, or not literally, metaphorically, a window that alters the way you see the archival object. The role of the imagination is, hence, not to be underestimated in our encounter with the archive. A healthy fascination with the materials from the, from the past implies a heuristic and hermeneutic action which is worth harnessing. So what I propose to do in this lecture um, is to reflect on the usefulness of the subjective categories of emotion and experience to our knowledge and understanding of manuscripts, but also of other types uh, and products of our literary heritage, including the importance of place. Um, and I've just come from the Dublin Joy School this week where, indeed, well, 60 people are here because of the place as well as the author. I want to think about how, through its apparent direct link with the author who produced these materials, the heritage object is a locus of the effect. But rather than simply, simply self-indulgently taking this effect at face value, I want to explore how precisely we can measure and value that effect and how we can make it useful to interpret and to help others interpret the literary past. To know the value of the effect, however, we need to know what the effect is. And to, find, to define the, the effect simply may well prove something of a challenge. The English poet, libra librarian and passionate defender of literary archives, Philip Larkin, 
famously made a distinction between the meaningful and magical value of manuscripts. The first, he said, leads to knowledge about the work of the person, and the second to wonder. But as Lisa Stead has noted uh, in the introduction to uh, that volume, the, 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 the Boundaries of the Literary Archive, um, as Lisa Stead has noted, pinning down what magical value is can tend to remain elusive. And in fact, Larkin himself did not really elaborate on what he meant by that himself. And so, as Stead points out, the, le points out, the lesson still seems to be that we should move beyond the magical value of manuscripts into its object objective exploration and, and use. So she, she points to it and then steps back from it again. One area of cultural activity that certainly knows how to value manuscripts is the trade, the trade in manuscripts. Putting a price on a manuscript may be governed by arbitrary factors. The reputation of the author, um, perhaps the number of items, items in the lot that's being sold, the type of the document, the type of the item, the time of the sale, possibly, location of the sale, um, etc. In particular, the practice by which authors sometimes deliberately produce fair copies that are not part of the original line of transmission uh, to, so that they can be sold in the open market just shows how artificial that market can be. Nonetheless, there would be no trade in manuscripts if our culture did not value authors' archives. That point is again easy to, uh, to underscore when we think of the trade's current discombobulation over born digital archives. Even the best dealers in the business simply don't know what price to put on someone's email archive or hard drive. Um, so I recommend that this is a good time to start collecting because these things will be, still be cheap. So while we cannot say precisely what the magical value of a manuscript is, we know at least this much, that it has something to do with association value, more than any inherent quality perhaps that the archive, that the artifact may possess. But despite not knowing what it is, I don't think, um, that wasn't supposed to happen. Um, I don't think it's a paradox to say that we are able to see how it works. The mystique of the manuscript allows a point of entry into the manuscript. In the very least, seeing the manuscript, um, experiencing it, can pique one's curiosity. And this certainly is how curators of literary heritage sites exploit the magic of the, uh, of the manuscript. The D.H. Lawrence Heritage Centre uh, in Eastwood near Nottingham, uh, now sadly closed, uh, provided an example of this with this rather traditional set of mannequins. The pair depicted are Lawrence and his muse, Jessie Chambers, um, who was the young woman who was a young woman who had encouraged him to write poetry. The scene that we see here depicts the two sitting, sitting in the kitchen at Hag's farm in Underwood, poring over a manuscript of one of his poems. And the manuscript is a facsimile taken from the University of Nottingham Lawrence collection. Even more so than literary archives, literary heritage may appear dangerously close to the sentimental or the fetishistic. 
while the use of archives and literary studies is increasing, not everyone is convinced that we should collect other objects that were once in the writer's possession. Um, why should anyone be interested in Charles Dickens's, Dickens's writing desk, James Joyce's walking stick, his father's waistcoat, or Jane Austen's tea cosy? Okay, there's no such thing as Jane Austen's tea cosy. <laughs> Yet I have heard people use exactly this image of Jane Austen's tea cosy to deride the notion that you know that it's the text that matters. To say we shouldn't obsess about these objects because they don't matter. It's the text that matters. Um, and surely, of course, also uh, Gabriel Conroy in Joyce's *The Dead* cannot have worn John Joyce's clothes. Um, so, okay, such naivete is certainly misplaced, well, to an extent. I disagree. The text is not the only thing that matters, certainly not the text. Good literary criticism is criticism that engages with the entire field of literary production. What I'm concerned with, rather, is how our culture engages with its literature from the past and the present. It does this through reading, of course, and that's important, um, but not just through reading. It also does this through plenty of other activities. Um, adaptations, for example, nowadays mainly film adaptations, but also for the theatre, the stage. Um, through book collecting, whether that is first editions or just possessing all of one's favourite novels or all of the novels of one's favourite writer. Um, we read letters, biographies, interviews, and so on. So despite literary criticism's taboos, most readers are interested in the life as they are interested in the work. This cult of the personality is no doubt a romantic idea that is open to a certain critique. But as I hope to show with the following perhaps extreme example, it also has a fundamental purpose to trigger curiosity. What could be more romantic than a lock of John Keats's hair? Well, the answer is two locks of John Keats's <laughs> hair. Um, that's the top left. Or a lock of hair from Percy and Mary Shelley. Or a lock of hair of Milton's. That's bottom left. Um, or a lock of hair of Yeats's, um, which I think is still on display around the corner in the NLI. Uh, the University of Iowa is the owner of the two Keats locks. Uh, those of Shelley are in the British Library in the Ashley Collection, uh, as is that uh, one of Byron, among others, which they have. Uh, the Milton lock of hair is in the Keats Shelley Museum in Rome. Uh, and as I said, uh, the Yeats is in the National Library of Ireland. Um, incidentally, the uh, lock of Milton's hair was a gift uh, from Lee Hunt to Elizabeth and Robert Browning. So we not only have the, okay, the romantic idea of possessing a lock of Milton's hair, but there's also this provenance, which itself is quite romantic. Um, and if hair is not enough to capture your fancy, uh, then you might be interested to know that this particular uh, uh, medallion that contains uh, Shelley's hair also contains a, pit, a bit of his ashes. Um, or you might be interested in the ashes of Frank McCourt, 
uh, whose urn is on display in the Frank McCourt Museum in Limerick. It may be not much of a point, but the fact that you know the hair of Milton of of uh, of Yeats, uh, the ashes of McCourt, uh, etc. The fact that they have been preserved shows that interest in authorial relics is not something that is restricted to the Romantic period. Uh, the Rylance Library also has a hair of loch by um, uh, Marcel Proust and Walt Whitman. Um, on the one hand, this sort of monumentalizing of the author is, much, is a much older phenomenon, and certainly, and again, it's not the first necessarily, but the publication of the collected works of William Shakespeare in 1623 in the first folio um, is, an, is an example of that, or the deposit of Milton's manuscripts at Trinity College, Cambridge in 1691 uh, is again an, an, an act of memorialising, monumentalising. On the other hand, preserving relics is a gesture uh, of sensibility that itself has a very long history. The practice of preserving hair, particularly popular throughout the Victorian period, uh, is still a practice that is common uh, in, in the present day. It still happens. And also, it features quite centrally in uh, John Donne's poem, The Relic, and this is the first uh, stanza. When my, when my grave is broke up again, some second guest to entertain. For graves have learned that woman had to be to more than one a bed, and he that digs it spies the bracelet of bright hair about the bone, will he not let us alone? And think that there a loving couple lies, who thought that this device might be some way to make their souls the last busy day, meet at this grave and make a little stay. Dunn, imagining a relic hunter opening up his grave, clearly felt ambivalent about the hairy mementos that this relic hunter might be after. While it is an emblem of the lover's eternal togetherness, he also thinks of the relic clearly as a misdevotion, as he calls it in the next stanza. Um, but certainly, the practice is near universal and it's older still than the early modern period, going as far back as the devotional practices and the veneration of saints' relics in the Middle Ages, and even before that, uh, perhaps to the good luck charms of the ancient world. What literature is concerned, the point that uh, these memorial practices can entail, the point is that these memorial practices can entail an intellectual pursuit. And it's thanks to the desire to possess artifacts from the past that we owe, for example, the development of history and archaeology, which have led and have resulted in the systematic study of our past. I think it's no coincidence that the Society of Antiquaries, formally established in 1717, emerges in an age of scientific revolution and an age of sensibility. Sensibility as an idea and a mode of experiencing, experiencing reality is of course rooted in Romanticism and the common belief that imagination is capable through an effort of sympathetic intuition of identifying itself with its object. 
This concept of the imagination is itself based on an 18th century theory, on 18th century theories of empirical associationism, by which understanding is produced in the imagination, but not, as it were, ex nihilo. The imagination works by associating impressions that are gathered together from the senses, from the senses and amalgamated into something more coherent, something more reasonable and meaningful. Um, in other words, amalgamated into a form of understanding. And I'm getting these ideas uh, from W.J. Bates, From Classic to Romantic, uh, where he traces the, these ideas of imagination and the history of empiricism and associationism. In On the Nature and Immutability of Truth, James Beattie contended that we sympathise even with things inanimate. Beattie's observation seems to be something of a revelation for the 18th century, which is coming to terms for the first time anyway with the feeling of sympathy and how we imagine ourselves uh, at one with another person or even an animal. And the examples Beattie uh, gives us, the example Beattie gives us, are particularly of personal objects dear to its owner. But it seems to have a wider applicability uh, as well. Poignantly, in the excursion, William Wordsworth too spoke of things inanimate that speak to social reasons in their sense with inarticulate language. Which in our context of heritage meshes well with the effect one can feel for objects from the past. Against this background, the antiquarian movement emerged as a critical enterprise to describe and examine, and thus also to collect antiquities of any description. Monuments, records, manuscripts, coins, ruins, and all sorts of other objects from the past. As opposed, as opposed to the writing of, of history, which before the positive turn of the 19th century was merely concerned with philosophical and literary interpretations of received narratives and universal laws of history and progress. Antiquarianism has at times a greater, sorry, antiquarianism was more concerned with actually its systematic description and interpretation of these objects. Antiquarianism may have had at times a greater urge to collect and possess the artefacts from the past, but nonetheless, with possession comes the need to classify and catalogue, which can't be undertaken. You can't catalogue and classify without actually analysing the object uh, that you have in your collection. I would like to illustrate these points now about the relevance of artefacts with a brief discussion uh, of a fair copy of Samuel Coleridge's poem, uh, which in this version is titled Fancy in the Clouds, a Marine Sonnet. The unusual form and shape of the manuscript, it's written on a piece of dried seaweed, makes it, you know, beyond doubt, a curiosity. But its history points to something more interesting. Coleridge wrote this sonnet in 1817, when he, was, when he was staying at Little Hampton on the Sussex coast. A celebration of the imagination, the poem tells of the pleasure we take from seeing shapes in the clouds as we walk along the beach. But then the poem compels us, after the caesura, to imagine 
that we are blind Homer on the strand uh, on the island of Chios, with inward light beheld, who with inward light beheld the Iliad and the Odyssey. A celebration of the imagination, the inward eye of the mind, uh, the poem thus deftly links the, the ephemeral with the enduring, a link that I think is also emblematized in the poem's physical embodiment in the manuscript. Coleridge had copied out the poem on a piece of seaweed, dried seaweed, that he picked up on the beach um, and sent it as a gift to his friend Charles Lamb. As an object, the manuscript is thus at once a symbol and a performance, and again this is where I'm echoing, as it were, this morning's talks. Um, it, it illuminates and carries within it a wide range of meanings concerning the reciprocity, real and symbolic, between fragility and permanence. It touches upon different spheres of human interest in cultural enterprise. Imagination, poetry, friendship on the one hand, and the art of collecting, and our fascination with historical artefacts on the other. Importantly, the poem and the object show that fancy, even though fancy for Coleridge was of a lower order than the imagination. But nonetheless, it shows that fancy can attain to understanding. Other manuscript copies of this poem existed, and the poem was also printed in one of his collections. But none of these meanings would be apparent if this particular seaweed manuscript had not survived. On the whole, one can identify three main drivers that motivate our preoccupation with heritage. First, heritage emerges from a, from a, from a, from a pension, from partial, from nostalgia that is part of the modern sidecast. Regardless of whether this nostalgia involves a genuine fascination with the past or a yearning for a time when things were simply better. Second, in economic terms, heritage is an important aspect in the tourist industry. Indeed, it has thrived as a result of it. And third, heritage plays a key part in the development of a greater historical awareness insofar as it offers the tangible artefacts that provide that direct link with our past. These three drivers aren't mutually exclusive. They all work together to explain our heritage. Nostalgia, or actually as I like to call it, the effect, is not a separate class from historical insight, but stands in a symbiotic relation to it. Symbiotic relation to it. The effect shows the way in, uh, is what I'm arguing. And Again, Dickens's writing desk uh, as, uh, gives us an example. Um, it was used um, imaginatively, imaginatively to evoke his creativity. In 2011, the Museum of London um, held an exhibition on Dickens and London, and they put, uh, among others, the desk on display, accompanied by an animated rendition of Dickens's dream the famous watercolour painting by Robert <coughs> W. Buss that showed a slumbering Dickens seeing in a dream vision all the characters that he had created in his novels. And you see that on the top left. And in the, in the animation that the Museum of London uh, put on display and had developed, 
this dream vision was brought to life. So one by one, these characters would like pop up and float in front of uh, the, the viewer and float in front of Dickens and then disappear again. Um, it's a gimmick, but it's something that draws your attention. It, it forces you, it encourages you, it invites you to reflect on what imagination is. What I call effect is the emotional and psychological response to the artifact. The effect is a subjective experience. It is a subjective experience. And consequently, is general and undefined. But nonetheless, it harnesses a power, uh, as I've been saying, that opens up the artifact to, or shows us the way to some form of interpretation. The effective response is immediate, though not unmediated. And therefore, it forms the initial step towards understanding and interpretation. In the wake of what is called the effective turn in uh, museum studies in the last decade or so, the notion that the effective value is one of a matrix of values has become quite prevalent. It rests on the broad assumption that visitors engage with the objects on display in the first instance through the senses rather than through language. The experience, as the art historians uh, Jules David Crown contends, is visceral, instinctive even, rather than intellectual, and thus it is unlike the understanding ob obtained from written sources. Specifically, the, connect the, the effective term acknowledges that museums, galleries and heritage sites function as contact zones between curator, artefact and visitor which, as Jennifer Fisher and Helena Reckitt postulate, necessitates an awareness of how curators configure atmospheres. And can, I think that word's important, atmosphere, or ambience is another one. How, those, how the, that configuration happens and how there's a deliberate generation of emotional climates to make the artefact meaningful in ways that aren't simply or narrowly discursive. In the words of Fisher and Reckitt, the curatorial effect shapes relations between feelings, intuitions, artworks, spaces, audiences, social networks, politics, ethics, and sensibilities. And a good example of that curatorial effect uh, we find in the Eastern 1916 exhibition at the GPO, at least in their marketing. I'm afraid I haven't, uh, unfortunately, I haven't yet seen the exhibition himself. Um, but there it is. History so close, it comes alive. Stephen Greenblatt, too, attributes a special form of knowledge to the effective, distinguishing between two kinds of responses, of emotional subjective responses. One he calls resonance, the other he calls wonder. Wonder, on the one hand, is about the attraction that emanates from an artefact. There's a sense of curiosity, but the curiosity might, in part at least, be displaced. Functioning almost as a fake sublime, wonder for Greenblatt is primarily focused on possession and display. It's about showing off treasure, about subjecting it to the blank gaze. Um, and of course, that's what constitutes the fetishistic obsession with, with objects. Residence, on the other hand, is a positive variant of the effective response to the artefact. 
Objects have resonance when they elicit a sense of intellectual curiosity and invite the viewer to look intensely, while the mind is, as it were, pulled away from the object itself to contemplate a series of what he calls only half-visible relationships and questions. So it is subjective, it is informed, but it's there. The object forces the viewer to, to confront um, what Greenblatt calls the object's intertwining voices. And th those intertwining voices is precisely what makes them resonant, what makes them resonate, what makes them echo. And these intertwining voices are its, its meanings, general meanings, its origins, its uses and genealogies, as well as the feelings and experiences it elicited or might have elicited uh, for the original owners or for those who possess it now. So while there's a clear hierarchy between the two categories, resonance is better than wonder, Greenblatt does acknowledge that one can lead to the other, wonder can lead to resonance. In the world of literary archives, Greenblatt's terms, I think, are certainly reminiscent of Larkin's distinguished distinction between the meaningful and magical value uh, of, uh, uh, of, of manuscripts. And Greenblatt goes some way towards helping us understand what that magical value might entail. <coughs> Excuse me. For Marion Deaver and other commentators, the tactile argument, not just our proximity to the object, but our ability to touch it, is a powerful one. But this still, I think, begs the question whether these, the effect is something that resides in the object and therefore brings about an emotional response, or whether it is something that is projected onto the object. So the danger of reification is particularly strong, um, nonetheless. Writing about the use of effect theory in archival studies, uh, Marika Seaford warns us indeed that there is no consensus among effect theorists as to how the effect attaches itself to objects. But the problem is highlighted um, <clears throat> with a number of objects on display at the King Richard III Visitor Centre in, uh, in Leicester. The upstairs room <coughs> of the Visitor Centre is devoted to telling the story of the archaeological find, how it came about, the science behind it, the discovery of the remains in the car park, uh, the identification that it was indeed Richard III, uh, who had been buried there, and this all happened um, in, in 2012. And the display includes objects from the dig itself. Uh, a high-vis jacket and protective headgear worn by the, queue, by the crew, and even the wellies of Philippa Langley herself, the lead archaeologist. And to us, these objects just seem mundane, and it's a weird thing to see them in a display case, you know, behind glass. Um, so they're too much of the present, I suppose, to have any real emotional impact. They're far from unique objects. At best, they are mementos that are promoted um, to a lieu de mémoire in a deliberate conceit. In other words, they are being, they are being made into history itself. Um, 
they might be more wonder than resonance in Greenblatt's terminology. Yeah. It seems artificial. But what will the view be in 50 or 100 years hence? Will they have gained more of effective value? Um, we might not wear wellies anymore at that point. Um, we might have other protective gear. This might seem an odd object from the past. And therefore, that fancy begins to work, I suppose. Despite any objection about subjectivity, fetishization, etc., the artifact, as C4 also contends, does make effective ways of knowing possible. And I think that's why it, it is important to have these artifacts in the dig. Perhaps it is, uh, sorry, in the exhibition, the artifacts from the dig in the exhibition. Perhaps it is specifically the object's reification, specifically the object's reification, that makes effective knowing possible. We cannot touch the past, yes, we can only touch objects that have come to us from the past, but nonetheless it is within this moment that something happens, that an imaginative leap happens, in which the, the past comes alive. Okay. Of course, there are debates you know, about the subjectivity and objectivity of interpretation of the past. Um, but nonetheless, you know, positivism is something that is increasingly, well, has been increasingly questioned for, for the last three, four decades, if not longer. The archive, as is frequently noted, is above all the place of human stories. The mystique of the manuscript is connected with the private lives of the individual who created it. So one part of coming to terms with the effect is to research and imagine to research and imagine the circumstances in which the document itself came into being. As a short case study, I want to use The Unicorn from the Stars, a play that W.B. Yeats wrote collaboratively with Lady Gregory in 1907-1908. One can imagine the place in which this happened. Cool Park, um, the house, Perhaps the very room in which the writing took place, um, the very desk, the very pen that was used. The writing space is circumscribed by the time in which that time that writing took, pl took place. So, to elucidate the biographical, socio-economical, political, and emotional circumstances, one can draw on other contextual and archival information from letters and diaries about events in Lady Gregory's and Yeats's life and the people they were interacting with. The time of writing, too, could tell us something about the time it took to complete the play. The writing took place during a fairly intense period of composition. Um, in turn, these contexts might lead to a consideration of what creativity, imagination, and inspiration mean to the writer. Plays, poems, and novels do not come in a flash of inspiration, as perhaps the Romantics so dearly wanted us to believe, but they gestate through trial and error, one line or one bit of dialogue engendering another. The sharp division between art and craft, or between first thoughts and revision, um, isn't, in my opinion, much of a sharp division at all. The creative power behind the revised sentence come, seems cognitively speaking come from the same seems to come cognitively speaking from the same sort of recesses of the mind as first thoughts, and all of this makes literary creation perhaps more of a human, albeit no less of a mysterious activity. 
But again, okay, these contexts are only circumstantial. There is the object itself, the materials, okay, the, whether these note, what, what notebooks they are, uh, the quality of the paper, what, what the format of the paper, perhaps even also the writing implements, the, the pen or pencil that were used in producing the, the text, the work. Diva and her co-authors note how peculiar it is that despite our obsession with the materiality of the archive, we seldom, we actually seldom talk about the physical properties of the documents itself. The materiality of the document is what really holds the key to the manuscript's effective quality. And consider, um, for example, the famous story of how Charles Lamb, in what he called was an evil hour, was shown Milton's manuscripts in uh, the library of Trinity College, Cambridge. Expecting to bask in Milton's glory, he was deeply disappointed. Disappointed by what he saw in front of them. Cancellations and revisions. Words that he had thought immortal and absolute appeared in front of him as, I quote, mortal, alterable, displaceable. And he vowed never to enter into the workshop of any great artist again. Lamb, if we take his encounter at face value, was depressed by the baseness of the manuscript. But we might as well say that he never considered Milton to have been human. What is fascinating about manuscripts, in other words, is not just their aura of greatness. Rather than being reverential objects, they are, for the writer, everyday objects. And this both in form and function. Lady Gregory's notebooks for, you know, that she used for her part of uh, the writing of the Unicorn from the start, from the start these notebooks are very, um, are very simple, they're very unelegant, they're very mundane, just like Philippa um, Langley's wellies, I suppose. Um, they're simply, you know, they're the kind of notebook that perhaps some of us have used ourselves in, in schools. The format hasn't changed in over a hundred years. The function hasn't changed in over a hundred years. There's nothing special about it. Um, and to her, it would have, as, as, would have been as mundane, uh, the notebook would have been, been sorry, the, for her, the notebook would have been as mundane to her as it is to us. Because it's simply a tool, something that the writer uses to get the work done, to get the writing finished. Nonetheless, I mean, there is perhaps uh, a, a, a flip side to this as well. There are definitely certain writers who have their own emotional attachment to the manuscript, which ranges from personal pref preference for a certain pen or a certain type uh, of paper. And again, this was already mentioned uh, this morning, Sylvia Plath um, likes to write on pink Smith College memorandum paper, always turned upside down. Uh, so that the header, Smith College, was at the bottom. I don't know why. That's what she did. Um, and even when she, because uh, yeah, she was teaching for a year at Smith College uh, in the US and then came back to England with uh, Tech Hughes, and she was writing to former colleagues uh, to go into the stationery cabinet and send her some 
uh, a meme of the, of the pink stuff. Virginia Woolf mostly or always wrote on blank paper, but not before carefully ruling it by hand, each, each leaf, each sheet at a time. Um, Nabokov liked to start his novels on index cards. Um, they served him as a means of taking notes, kind of, uh, or scenarios, little bits of, of, uh, of, of, of prose, little snippets of the novels. Uh, but it's also a classification system that offered maximum flexibility for structuring his ideas. And the uh, British writer Will Self, contemporary writer Will Self, um, bottom right, um, he uses, in a similar way, sticky notes as a means to create a mind map um, on his wall. So he writes a sticky note, sticks it on the wall, and when he's then writing out the ideas, he plucks them off the wall and then presumably discards them. So when it comes to the relation of writers uh, and the, to, the, to their own archives, the reason why so many manuscripts survive from the early 18th century onwards to the present is because the archive has definitely a value to them. That value can be sentimental, it can also be practical. And in the workshop I organised uh, a few years ago uh, at the Institute of English Studies in London, uh, the poet Sean O'Brien said that he uh, actually really didn't throw anything away, um, not because he thought it might be of some use to him, but he did admit that actually, yeah, sorry, he, he thought he didn't throw anything away because he felt it might be of use to him at some point, uh, although he admitted that actually that rarely happened. But even those writers who rather not have a posthumous archival existence tend not to destroy everything. Uh, when T.S. Eliot donated the drafts of uh, his poems Little Ginning and the Dry Solvages to Magdalen College, Cambridge, he did so, um, but not without some hesitation. Um, he, on the one hand, he said that he was weary to add to the national supply of pulp. Um, on the other he felt it was a way of kind of paying back for some, of some services that the college had rendered him. And indeed, Elliot rarely kept anything but fair copies. Um, but even if those fair copies were never intended for public use, he still kept them. And so when he gave one of his uh, notebooks with juvenilia, um, when he gave away one of his notebooks with juvenilia, uh, now known as the Inventions of the Martyr Poems, um, to his friend, the New York lawyer John Quinn, he expressly forbade publication. Yet the notebook in question, which is now at the Bird Collection in the New York Public Library, uh, had served its purpose for him. Eliot had consistently removed rough drafts, uh, judging from the amount of pages that were actually torn out of the notebooks. Um, but various lines and images from the poems turn up in later work, so what survives there is something that he, he, uh, he recycles. The notebook, in other words, while mainly containing poems that had been rejected, still served Eliot as a kind of storehouse, as a source for inspiration. Um, perhaps one might call this uh, practice a case of self-influence. 
So while the effect is a useful concept, for the student of archives and manuscripts, there's, there is yet another difficulty that needs to be dealt with. Uh, locks of hair and other objects have a sense of immediacy as objects. And so, of course, does the manuscript. But a manuscript is multidimensional. Um, it's it's three-dimensional like any other object, but it has an inside and an outside as well. Moreover, it is both artefact and text. It's physically complex so that we can never take it all in at once. Its outer form, its material makeup and presence is only one aspect of its phenomenology. So an important question is, how do we really get into the manuscript? To elucidate that point, I want to look again more closely at some of the materials from the unicorn from the stars. The opening uh, of one of the notebooks uh, that you see here um, contains uh, early drafts for this play. Um, but this image in itself, this is the opening that you're looking at, the first page, but this image cannot render the intricate nature of this document and how it works. Although the draft text progresses fairly linearly, the notebook does not contain a full draft of the play, not even in fragmented form. The notebook is in fact one of three notebooks that are similar to it. But even when we look at these three notebooks together, they still don't constitute a complete version of the play. Some notebooks hold different parts in different drafts, but none of these parts represents, as I said, a complete version of, of, the, of the play. Um, of course, it's possible that there are other notebooks that are no longer extant. Um, but there's, there's, some, some bits are in two versions. So certain parts of the play we have two drafts for in this notebook. Other sections are completely lacking. So the, the notebooks themselves stand in a complex relationship to one another, but also to other documents in the Genesis. A relationship that is further complicated owing to the fact that the writing was collaborative. While the words were Lady Gregory's, the scenario actually belonged to both of them, but it was Yeats who put the finishing touches to the play. And while one might think these compositional acts played themselves out consecutively, they did not. Um, the various documents that survive tend to overlap with one another. We can see things that are actually written simultaneously in two different rooms of the house. The three notebooks are all in the hand by Lady Gregory, but as I said, not a complete draft of the play, not even a single draft. Um, others are drafted twice, as I said, as well, uh, but not necessarily in the order that is neatly sequential. Second, the three notebooks are contemporaneous with an extensive series, and that's what you're looking at now, an extensive series of typed notes, some concerned with character and plot, some containing sketched out bits of dialogue. Notes or, or sections that were written by Lady Gregory and Yeats as they were working together. There's evidence that they're sitting down <coughs> together while Lady Gregory is typing up. Some of these notes feed into the notebook drafts, but also vice versa. Some of the notebook drafts feed into 
into these, uh, these series, these pages. So apart from the handwriting then, which also in itself is difficult enough to decipher, um, or the intricacies of textual revision, uh, the extent to which the various documents are connected within, in, with one another in their genetic matrix is virtually impossible to fathom at a glance. It takes a lot of puzzling, uh, uh, puzzling together. Um, so virtually impossible, which then uh, leads us to digital technology. Okay, so. The digital medium has, of course, the potential to get us into the manuscript. But more innovative thinking is as yet necessary to realize this potential. Um, but I think it's clear, or in my mind it's clear at least, that such technologies, if they are developed, when they are developed, must be predicated on the archival effect. What I have in mind, what I envision, is not a digital genetic edition or a digital archive, of which we now have several examples, um, but of a new type of technology that actually better represents the manuscript in its various dimensions. Uh, so not just a textual history or textual composition accompanied by digital facsimiles, but something else, something more immersive. Um, one type of immersive technology that already exists uh, and that perhaps uh, some of you are familiar with is turning the pages. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with turning the pages, it's a kind of, um, it's a digital kiosk that enables the visitor to browse through the manuscript in a 3D rendition. Um, and the NLIZ8 edition makes uh, extensive use of it. Now, great though it is, and it is fantastic technology, turning the pages is also, to put it crudely, um, is also no more than perhaps the digital version of the old-fashioned uh, glass cabinet, the old-fashioned display cabinet. The difference between the old-fashioned cabinet and turning the pages is that turning the pages, yes, can display the whole manuscript in the form of a digital surrogate, where in the display case you can only see one side of a sheet of paper or at best an opening of a notebook, the visitor can um, get a better sense of, of, the, uh, of the surrounding narrative of the manuscript. Um, but what surrounds, what are other aspects that surround it? In the old-fashioned camera, there was the caption, and in a way, the turning the pages replicates that caption. The text is often longer, but it's still a text that sits alongside the object. It doesn't quite resolve for me then how the problem of how to get into the manuscript, um, because if you have a manuscript such as the, the Lady Gregory notebooks and all the typescripts around it. It's so intricate that it's not self-evidently revealing its, its secrets, as it were. So what kind of immersive technology do we, need to, do we need to create that gets us beyond the thresholds, beyond the impediments, beyond the difficulties? Um, and the question, uh, certainly for me at this stage, is an exploratory one, uh, and one that I'm sort of working out uh, at the moment. 
uh, what you know what would that technology uh, look like? Um, but there are lessons to be learned from uh, various other uh, practices. Digital storytelling, among others, the use of digital media to support personal narratives, uh, computer gaming, virtual reality, but also the kind of interactive displays that we find perhaps in science and technology museums. And I look with great jealousy at these museums and I ask if they can explain complex laws of physics to the general visitor, why can't we do the same with manuscripts? So the general idea is that the digital is not just there to display the, the manuscript, but that it should, its powers should be used to explore the manuscript, to find ways to guide the viewer's attention to certain aspects that are interesting of the manuscript, to narrate, help narrate its inner workings, um, to ask questions and elicit responses in a way that encourages engagement with and understanding of the manuscript at a, at a, at a deeper level. Uh, and this is again linked to one of the earlier discussions today, you know, how do you discover a manuscript, a particular item in a collection? It's important for scores, but it's also important in a museum or an archive setting that caters for uh, a broader audience. Um, what exactly this virtual guided tour would look like it still remains to be seen, as I said, these are ideas that I'm working on. So to draw my remarks to a brief conclusion, I want to state that what I hope has been obvious, or has become obvious, and that is that the conjunction and in my title uh, should indeed mean both. Literary archive and literary heritage are one. However, I've wanted to highlight how a curatorial sensibility can begin to cut through the complexities of the archive and the archival record, particularly for those like myself who are interested in literary manuscripts uh, in their form as well as their content. For my, in my research, I'm concerned with both the gestation process of a literary work, uh, as it can be revealed through the manuscripts, um, as well as the codicological and paleographical dimensions of the manuscripts. But these dimensions, these aspects, can be incredibly complicated and time-consuming to study, to come to terms with. So for some time, therefore, I've been interested in how a non-specialist might come to terms with the intricacies of the manuscript. And this is what, in particular, has led me to considering the effect uh, as a way to focus attention, as a stimulus for curiosity and learning. In the end, we are all, uh, we are all the time to a greater or less, lesser extent concerned with the past. Everyone is concerned with the past. Remembering, collecting and preserving the past are part of the human condition. Even those who do not profess to have any interest whatsoever in history are still, to some degree, preoccupied with history, even if it's their own personal past and that of their family. The effect, therefore, is what gives heritage a democratic dimension. Uh, and we can invoke Pierre Bourdieu and what he calls the distant proximity, the bridging of the gap between the past and the present through processes of personal identification with objects or activities. And, and commentators have again pointed to the socialising effect that cultural heritage brings about. The heritage object too creates an apparent direct link between past and present, and thus it is important to the way we define our identities. Artifacts and heritage sites can lend substance and reality to social abstractions. That's Bourdieu again. 
such as community, ethnicity, or nation that shares nations, that share a culture. It is thus heritage, heritage's ability to have a transformative effect in the social field that I've wanted to invoke as a way of circumventing the effect as a purely subjective, magical, fetishistic way of seeing the literary archive and literary heritage. 